The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 53, to the chief musician, Satu Mahalat, a contemplation of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. There they are in great fear where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Okay, we're in... Uh, Chapter 7 of the book of Esther today, it's a marvelous, marvelous passage on the surface, but even more than that, behind the scenes, there is a lot going on. Uh, Esther is one of those books that really, really shows you that there is a God that is evident, that he is there, and that he is tending to both his people and his word. And I say that because what is hidden in the book of Esther, which will be revealed today, as we've seen a couple times, and especially in the uh, last sermon as well, are things that nobody ever knew were there. They were completely hidden. There was no reason for them to be there, okay? And then some scholars here or there would find something, and then uh, we have Sergio over in Israel, and he develops a computer program, and it looks for these things, which could never have been done before in human history, and out they come. And they reveal that there is a divine wisdom behind the Word of God. It's not just something that is, is uh, possible, like, oh, that could have happened, that's random chance, and it could have happened. This is something that could not have happened, okay? One of the things we're going to look at today in particular is the name of God, all right? We, we have two different names of God that are going to be seen in the book of Esther. One of them is one that we've seen already. Another is one that we have not seen. Then I will say that those four divine names, Jehovah and the one divine name, Aa, or I am who I am, okay, those were known before, these were, I don't know when they were discovered, but they were known before. But one of the things that was never known, and I don't know how they missed it, is what I will reveal in the passage today. Okay, it, it's rather remarkable. But we'll go ahead and get into the Esther uh, 7, chapter 7 verses right now. We'll read them, and then we're going to go through this, and I would hope that you would pay attention to what comes about today, because it is rather astonishing. Yes, Jim, you had something? Could the writer have known? I, you know what? I, there's no way. Some of the acrostics, especially that we'll see in chapter 10, it is impossible. You, you, there's no way you could have known. But the answer is yes, because God is the author of Scripture. And so true. God did know. But the writer would not have known these things, especially one of the acrostics I had in the first sermon. And uh, they're very, it, very tedious. Not only does the computer have to find these things, but then they have to be aligned properly. And that takes human effort, and that is what Sergio does, and he can spend a day looking for what we were wanting to find, and the, in the last sermon, it was only three verses, and yet it took him hours and hours to look through, but 
it's rather astonishing. And no, a human person could not have known that these were in there. It, it is not possible. Anyway, Esther 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. The day I typed this sermon, I was giddy with anticipation. It was just five days away from the return of my cherished friend, Sergio and Rhoda. It was a year before that they had departed my house for the last time and returned to Israel. My heart was broken and there was a void in my life. I've spoken with them almost daily, sometimes more often than that, as I pester them with questions that only they can answer concerning Hebrew or problems that only Sergio can fix as I botch up something in my computer. But... There I sat on Monday typing the sermon and waiting for Friday when they would arrive once again to ease my longing for their company. But I was also in high anticipation for another reason. Outside of an extremely limited number of people, and those only because it was absolutely necessary that they needed to know, or because they couldn't interfere with what was coming, nobody knew that they were headed to the United States. I would depart just two days later to see a friend, John, in Washington State, and they would head to the church that same day and take over for you all in my absence. It was planned months and months in advance, and yet even my mother was not allowed in on it. As the military says, there must be a need to know, and she didn't have one. Again. But the fact that nobody except those who needed to know had any idea that they were coming didn't change the fact that they were coming. Our text verse today comes from Daniel chapter 2. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. Some things exist that we simply have no idea about. How many of you have read the book of Esther before? 
Anybody? We're now in chapter 7. Until going through these past Esther sermons, were you all aware of the interesting hidden patterns and parallels that we've seen? Surely not, but they have been there all along. And the frustrating thing for me is that there are countless others that I am that we are all still unaware of. But it doesn't mean that they aren't there. And it follows along exactly with the constant theme which I have talked about in every Esther sermon so far. We act in the same manner about the Lord. He is, as we say, out of sight, out of mind. Problems creep up and we get overwhelmed. How will I ever get out of this? Tragedy occurs and we say, now, where are things going to end up? We fail to direct our words to him, and we are tossed upon a sea of confusion when it is so. But Sergio and Rhoda were on their way from Israel to America to tend to you with their help, love, and instruction, and to help out the church with new equipment, even though you didn't know that it was coming. And they came and you benefited from it. Your not knowing did not stop what was known. How much more true is that with the Lord? The Lord is both here, now, and he is also coming. He is. When the Lord said, I am that I am, he was telling us that he is. No place is out of reach. No thing is unknown, and nothing can thwart what he wills. We walk blindly in our knowledge and uncaring about events as they unfold, but it doesn't mean that he is not there in the process. Esther shows us this. The Lord, unacknowledged and unseen, is still there. Understanding this in Esther a little more with each sermon, let us then apply this truth to our lives concerning the Lord who is in our midst. The great I am is. Let us remember this. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is the adversary and enemy. It's verses 1 through 6. Verse 1, So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. Ve'yabo ha'malech ve'haman lishtot im Esther ha'malcha. Being such a simple verse for us to start with, it seems as if there would be nothing difficult for the translators. But for the sake of it, let's look at a variety of the translations of these few words. I'm going to read them from the New King James Version again, and then I'm going to give you several different translations or translators' translations of this one verse, okay? So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. What I'm going to do is I'm going to divide them into categories so that you can see the differences. Some people translate the word ve, which means and, as so. Some say the word ve as now. Some just ignore it completely, and some say the word and, okay? I've got them put together in that order so that you can see how different translators have taken this one verse and translated it. Very easy verse, right? You all agree? So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. Simple verse. From the NIV. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. Another. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. Another. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther, the queen. So the king and Haman came to the banquet. The is not in there, but they added it in with Esther, the queen. So the king and Haman came to have dinner with Queen Esther. So the king and Haman came to dine with Queen Esther. So the king and Amman, that's a Catholic virgin, they leave off the H completely. So the king and Amman went in to drink with the queen. 
My question is, where is Esther? Because her name is specifically given in the Hebrew, and yet they didn't say it. Next one. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. The next one. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine, but it's italicized because it's not in the original with Esther the queen. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. The king and Haman were dining with Esther. The king and Haman went in to have a drink with Queen Esther. Go back to the last one. Where is the word queen when I said it? Uh, the king and Haman were dining with Esther. They left off the word queen completely. Ha Malka, the queen. They left it off. We'll go on to the next one again. The king and Haman went in to have a drink with Queen Esther. The next one. And so the king and Haman went to eat with Esther. Again, where is the queen? It doesn't say Ha Malka. And the king and Haman came to drink with Esther the queen. That's the Darby. I love John Darby's translation. Another one that I especially love, Robert Young, a good British gentleman. And we've got some English people here today. He did a great translation of the Bible and his own concordance of the Bible. And the king cometh in and Haman to drink with Esther the queen. Then we have two more literal translations. The first is Charlie's literal translation of this verse. <laughs> And came the king, comma, and Haman, comma, to drink with Esther the queen. That's my literal translation. I asked Sergio to do the same thing, not telling him why I wanted it. This is his translation. Exact word for word as I did it, missing one comma. And came the king and Haman, comma, to drink with Esther the queen. Okay? He left off one comma after king that I added in, and that is the only difference at all. But you can see how many variations there are. You see that? Everybody got that now? Mm -hmm. Some leave out important words. Some add in words not in the text. Some interpret for us what a word means rather than literally translating it, and so on. If there is this much variance in a single, simple verse, just imagine how much variation there will be in much more complicated verses. <laughs> this may seem like an unimportant exercise in nitpickatory nitpicking, but it isn't. Translators are generally not scholars. They simply translate. However, unless they refer to scholars, or unless they have an exceptionally well-grounded understanding of context, they are bound to make errors in their translations. And so, this verse shows us how important a line-by-line -line and even a word-by-word -word study of the text really is. If we have such erroneous translations of this verse, we truly must study to show ourselves approved in all verses that we come across. Everybody get the logic? For one small example of those verses I just went through, as far as the words to drink, I'm only going to focus on two words. Some added in the word wine, which isn't in the verse, but it is stated explicitly in verse 2. So is it wrong to add in here? No, but it should be italicized or bracketed if it is. Okay, some, such as the King James Version, use the word banquet rather than to drink, and they are using it as a verb. Now, that would be fine because it is a banqueting, but that causes confusion because they use the same word in the same context elsewhere as to drink. And a different word is used in verse 2 where they also say banquet, but which they then call a feast elsewhere in their translation back in chapter 1. There is a lack of consistency in the King James Version translation. It should simply say here, to drink. The amount of care of translation shows the amount of respect for God's word. 
It is a long, arduous task which really necessitates us reading multiple translations in order to get a better perspective of actual intent. And this is why our sermons here at the Superior Word are so complicated. It's because I believe this is the Word of God. And I know it's the Word of God. It has proven itself many, many times in things that we otherwise never could have grasped that have just been revealed through these detailed sermons. It's hard work. I understand that. I understand that it can make your head hurt when you go home. You might remember one thing out of 4,000 points, but the fact is that you are growing in the Word of God, and that's why we do it this way. And this one verse with those many translations shows us how important this is. Verse 2, and on the second day, the words here seem superfluous. But they are to remind us that there has already been one banquet and that the extraordinary events which occurred after it came about. For whatever reason, the queen withheld her request at that time and had asked for the king's attendance of a second banquet when she would make her request known. Verse 2 continues, at the banquet of wine. This explains the to drink of the previous verse. It isn't just for them to come over and have a Coke and some snacks. Instead, it is a mishte a banquet which consists of yayin, or as we say in English, wine, specifically fermented wine. Any food is secondary to the wine. Esther is the queen. She knows the king's proclivities, and she has known how he has reacted with wine in the past. It brings a passion on him, which can be directed based on her submission or lack of submission to his will once he was under its influence. Remember, it happened with Vashti. As noted in the first Esther sermon, wine symbolizes the merging together of expressions into a result. The thing that ought to happen can happen, symbolized by the wine. Whether she learned this through observation or some other way, she is applying the truth to the situation now. Further, there was one banquet on the first day, and that is followed up by a second banquet the next day. Everything that happened between the two must be weighing very heavily on the mind of Haman as they sit there drinking. Verse 2 continues. The king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. The words here are very similar to those of verse 5-6. Listen to this. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. The only substantial difference between the two is that the king adds in the words Esther ha Malka or Esther the queen. It shows us something important. He could not sleep the night before. The reason was because Esther had come before him chancing her own life in order to petition the king for something. He extended the scepter to her and then asked in verse 5-3, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, up to half the kingdom. There he also called her Queen Esther, obviously indicating that she was accepted to come into his presence because she was queen. Her request seemed almost trivial for such a chance. She simply asked him and Haman to come to the banquet which she had prepared. At that feast, he asked her again what she wanted, but didn't call her Queen Esther in front of Haman. However, she delayed her request for a second day. It was a request which would deprive him of sleep as the thoughts of what she desired spun through his head on a continuous loop. Eventually, he rose and had the book of the records of the Chronicles read to him. He knew that whatever she wished must be so important that she was willing to go through these events in order to come to that point of stating her petition. 
She has proven herself not just a beauty, but a woman of perseverance and patience. Thus he acknowledges her now in Haman's presence as Queen Esther, a title she has earned in her dealings of these past two days. Verse 3, Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Esther here employs a rather amazing use of linguistics. First, there is an abruptness in her words which reflect the emotions she is relaying. Secondly, the king had asked, one, what is your petition? And two, what is your request? She accepts both separately. And so she divides her words into answering both separately. When she answers, first her petition is made for herself, my life. And then a request is made for another, my people. One would assume the king was simply being verbose and offering the granting of one thing, not two. It would be like someone today saying, what do you need? How can I help you? They're uniting the two thoughts into one gracious offering. Any normal answer would be, I need 50 bucks. But a person who is linguistically skilled might say, well, I need $50 and you can help by waxing my car. How do you turn down two requests when you've made two offers? This is what Esther has done. And thirdly, she has done it in a marvelous way by saying, if I have found favor in your sight. Up until this point when speaking to him, the last time being in chapter 5, she has spoken to the king in the third person. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king. Now her first words in chapter 7 to him are in the second person. She has worked her way up to meeting him on a personal level. These first words to him must have been as surprising to the king as if she had said, I want to go on an elephant ride to India and back. What she has spoken is probably so far from what he could have imagined that he must think that she is making a joke. But yet, she had come into his presence unannounced at the risk of her own life. It could be no joke. Esther then continues, verse 4, For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Esther uses the same words found in the royal edict dispatched by Haman, which said, And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. She is identified with her people and their plight. They are united, and she has admitted that she cannot be exempted from what will come upon them. From this, she then follows up not with words which she would do, but which she would have done. Verse 4 continues, Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue. The people, her people and herself, had been sold to destruction. Any person, be it a criminal or a foreigner, is normally allowed to petition for their life. She is exercising that right now, especially because she has been tied into an edict by default, being Jewish herself. They have had no chance to petition for their lives, but now she stands as their representative to do just that. Had it been any other edict, such as being returned to the slavery that they had lived under in Egypt, she would not feel it worthy of even speaking out. But the sentence of death necessitates that she cannot hold her tongue. It is too great of a thing to remain silent over. Verse 4 continues, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. The words of this clause are most obscure and translations vary widely. Now think of that easy verse that I translated 20 different versions and all 20 are different for you. Imagine this verse. It's a very complicated verse. How much variation there is going to be. 
It is so difficult that scholars say that even the ancient translators are not much help in understanding the meaning. This is exacerbated by the fact that she uses two extremely rare words. The first is ve'ilu, or and though. Ilu is found only here and in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Here's what it says there. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if, ve'ilu, he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place? The second is a word found only here in the Bible. Nezek, meaning injury or damage. Further, with the word translated as the enemy, it makes the entire clause literally read something like this. Even though the enemy is not equal to the king's hurt. Doesn't make any sense, does it? One must then try to figure out what she is saying and then paraphrase it into understandable words. Robert Young, who I mentioned earlier, takes the word enemy and converts it to adversity. It is used in a similar manner elsewhere, and so what it may be as to the true meaning of this verse is even though the adversity is not equal to the loss of the king. In other words, if the Jews were simply sold into slavery, she would have kept quiet, even though what they had to endure would not be equal to what the king and his realm would suffer in loss. She is saying that as a people, their value as free citizens was worth much more to the empire than it would be if they were in bondage. And yet, it would not be worth bothering the king over. How much more then would the loss be to the empire when all of the Jews were destroyed? Her words, they may be obscure to us, but they were not so to the king. His anger boils over what he hears. Verse 5, so King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Vayomer hamalech achashverosh, vayomer la Esther ha malka, and said the king Ahasuerus, and said to Esther the queen. The words are to be taken as intended. The doubling of the word said is its own stress. One might paraphrase it, and the king said in a stunned manner to the queen, He is the king, she is the queen his queen. The unity of the bond is highlighted. The words are a foretaste of his allegiance to her throughout this entire ordeal. Verse 5 continues, who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? The Hebrew words here are short, abrupt, doubled, and even confused. Most are just two or three letters long, like someone stammering. They are a perfect example of what one would expect of a person who had been completely waylaid, and then who can hardly speak at all, much less words that are sufficient to convey the thoughts which have flooded the mind. He says, Who he this, and where this he, that filled his heart to accomplish thus. These words, despite being broken and confused from a human standpoint, are intricately woven together and marvelous from a divine outlook. They bring in the only acrostic of the divine name A.A., or I Am, in the entire book of Esther. Remarkably, and this is something that I have never seen anybody clue into, even though they knew the A.A. was in there, Guess what? Remarkably, it can be spelled either backwards or forwards using three of the same four words. First, it is spelled forward from the final letters of the words huze veeze, or he this and where this. 
Or it can be spelled backwards from the final letters of ze, ve, zehu, or this and where, this, he. In both acrostics, only the first or last word is changed. However, all five words are palindromic. They read the same forward and backwards. Huze, vee, ze, who. He, this, and where, this, he. It is really remarkable to see. Going forward, it signifies that the Lord, I am, had determined the end which will occur, and he is bringing it about now. Going backward, it signifies that the end is approaching for the matter, but that I am is overruling what had previously been determined. Both are occurring at the same time, as if a pivot in redemptive history has been met in the words, he this and where this he. The king has asked the question, but the answer to the enigma is actually hidden in the short, broken words that he stutters out. There is a human agency which has determined evil for the people of God, intending to destroy them as they lead to the Messiah. But there is a divine wisdom of God working out his plans, thwarting others' plans, and effecting his purposes in a people who don't even know that he's there. He is there, though. I am that I am delivered his people from the bondage of Egypt and the rule of Pharaoh. And that same I am is there to deliver his people from the one who is determined to destroy that same group of people a thousand years later. For the story itself, it is obvious at this point that the king knows the answer. He could not help but to have realized it with Esther's repeating the words of the very edict which Haman had authorized. He now realized why she appeared before his throne, even at the possibility of her own death. Also, why she had invited Haman to a personal banquet, and even why she had delayed the matter for a second banquet. But because it was his signet ring which sealed the matter, he was just as at fault as Haman was. She could just as easily have pointed her slender finger at him and said, You are the man. But he knew this wouldn't happen. The invitation of Haman to the banquet brought out the inevitable answer to the enraged question. Verse 6, and Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Ishtar Oyev Haman Hara Hazeh. Man, adversary, and enemy, Haman, the wicked, the this. As confused and abrupt as the king's words were, such as the exact opposite with the words of Esther, they are direct purposeful, and pointed. In them, she leaves off any definite article concerning Haman in order to align him with what he is. Instead of the adversary and the enemy, she says, adversary and enemy. It is his nature. It is his filling. There could be no mistaking her meaning or the nature of her intended target. He was a diabolical schemer, and he was the enemy of her people and of the king and his kingdom. She could not highlight the nature of Satan himself any better than she had highlighted that of Haman. Verse 6 continues, so Haman was terrified before the king and queen. You think? <laughs> we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. We don't even truly know the reason why, but so has the decree been dictated. Were we merely sold as male and female slaves, we would not fight the decree or question the law. But we are destined for death and then to our graves. In this there is no logic, only fatal flaw. And so we petition you, our great king, to consider this thing and act against it. Tell us that mercy to us you will bring, and to your will we will humbly submit. 
Our second thought today is Haman's ballet. It's verses 7 through 10. Verse 7, Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. Scholars have universally missed the meaning of these words. Almost without exception, they say he rose in his anger to go blow off steam in the palace garden, or thoughts similar to this. What is happening here is that Esther is having a banquet with the king and his first official. The three of them would be alone. There would be no need for the royal guards, nor would their presence be welcome. Rather, his rising isn't to blow off steam, but to go get those same guards who are missing from the scene in order to resolve the matter which the king has already determined to correct. This is evident from the next words. Verse 7 continues, But Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life. Haman knew what the departure of the king meant, and there was only one place that he could go to hope to receive mercy from the queen. Women are generally considered to be more tender of heart over such things, aren't they? And so she is his only chance of hope. Unfortunately for him, he failed to realize that a woman's heart is as unforgiving as any man when such a matter as this is involved. He had brought misery to her family, to her people, and to her personally. But despite this, he still is hoping for mercy. Verse 7 continues, For he saw the evil was determined against him by the king. There is an article in front of the word evil. It says, the evil. Thus, it signifies doom. It isn't just to be a bad day at the office, but the day of disaster. Unless the queen intercedes, he has met his end. This verse closes out a set of twos. In verse 112, the anger of the king burned against Vashti. Here it is said to burn against Haman. The two contrast. One was because of an offense by the queen, the second is because of an offense against the queen. One is towards a woman, the other is towards a man. One led to a new wife for the king, a Jewess. The other will lead to a new second ruler for the kingdom, a Jew. Both, however, confirm royal authority. This verse also brings in the fourth acrostic of the divine name, Yehovah. It is formed just as the third was from the final letters of the words Kikaleta Elav Hara'ah, or Fordetermined Against the Evil. Those final letters, Yud, He, Vav, He, spell out Yehovah. They are the final letters signifying the finality of the matter. Haman's end has come. However, they are spelled forward in the text, like the first acrostic. This signifies that the Lord is sovereignly ruling and bringing about the end which he alone has determined. While it seems as only two are in the room alone, a third unseen and unacknowledged is there as well. He is guiding his creation, revealing to them their destiny in short second-by-second -second intervals. And yet, he is already where they are heading. How great and how remarkable is the scene for us to gaze upon and to ponder. The unseen Lord is there directing history to himself. Verse 8. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Reclining on a sofa or on the floor was not an uncommon thing during a banquet or a meal in the Middle East at this time. In Amos 6 verse 7, this is noted. Therefore, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. Even at the time of Christ, it was customary as a way of dining. 
This is seen, for example, in Matthew 26, where it says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. If you come to Charlie's house for dinner, you will find the same setup, won't you? Because we eat on the floor on a low table. While the queen of our house would never think to recline, her lazy husband usually ends up doing so to her constant and continued dismay. She's Japanese, she's very proper, she sits at the low table, but she never reclines. I will quite often just lay back on the ground as I'm stuffed with her food and roll there in agony and say, I'm sorry I'm reclining here, folks, where there's 10 guests or something hanging around. Anyway, here the point is that Haman got up from his seat or his couch and went forward to Esther. This act was one of submission to the one and only person that could save him from certain doom. However, the king used it as a final excuse to both embarrass and condemn him for his wickedness and now also his irreverence. Not just to the queen, but to him. For your notes, if you keep such things, this is the last use of the word bitan, or palace, in the Bible. It was introduced in Esther 1, verse 5, and it is now used up. We can say, hasta la vista, baby, to that. Verse 8 continues. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? It's not likely the case that he thought this was what was happening. But it probably brought him the greatest of joy to say the words anyway. And he certainly would score points with his lovely wife in the process. It was evident that she detested Haman, and so in defending her honor, even as a show, it was a very nice touch. Verse 8 continues, as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. The act here is one of disgraceful excommunication. He was to never see the light of day or the favor of the king again. Further, neither king nor queen nor subject would see the face of Haman again. He was cut off from the land of the living, even if he had not yet arrived at the land of death and decay. This verse closes out another set of twos. The first was in 612, where Haman covered his own face at the initiation of his own downfall. There, he was heading to his house looking for comfort. Here, his face is covered by others at the completion of his downfall as he is led off to the gallows at his house in disgrace. They contrast in detail, but they confirm the full and final downfall of wicked Haman. Verse 9. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Harbona is the only one of the seven eunuchs mentioned in Esther 1 verse 10, who is mentioned again in a later verse. This is his second and final appearance in the book. He has an idea, a great one in fact, as can be seen with his expressive words. Look! The gallows 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. There's almost a resounding joy in his words. Hine, behold! Two things are apparent from what he says. Harbona did not like Haman, and Harbona did like Mordecai. He was aware of what Haman had purposed concerning the gallows for Mordecai, maybe even from Mordecai. He certainly didn't hear it from Haman. And he also knew of what Mordecai had done for the king and compliments him on it now in the presence of the king. Harbona is a helpful soul for the Jewish cause, which is looking a little better moment by moment. He obviously knew Mordecai's character and he felt it was an excellent reflection on him and on his people. Haman, on the other hand, had fallen out of pretty much everyone's favor. Verse 9 continues, then the king said, hang him on it. Ha! Verse 10, 
So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Haman did his final ballet as his legs twitched upon the pole he had erected for another. The evil that he intended for Mordecai was turned back upon himself, and he died in his own sin and wickedness. If the number of ironies in the Bible were recorded and then read out, it would be a long, long sermon. If they were placed in ascending order, this would be towards the very top of those ironies. God turns what is intended for evil into good, and he does it in a way that is astonishing. For now, the hanging of Haman had a rather calming effect on at least one weary soul. Unlike the previous night, his sleep would probably be sweet when the day closed out because verse 10 finishes with, then the king's wrath subsided. The wrath of the king was appeased through the death of the wicked. This closes out another set of twos. In verse 2, 1, the king's wrath subsided against a woman, his queen, leading to his looking for a new wife. He found one, a Jewess, to fit the role as his mate. After his wrath here in chapter 7 subsides against a man, his number one, it will lead to looking for a new man to promote in Haman's place. He will find a Jew to fit that role. The two accounts contrast, and yet they confirm the hand of God in the appointment of two of his chosen people to fill the highest roles of the king's life and government. Something I alluded to in a previous sermon, and that should be repeated now, is that Haman was a wicked man who died, thus ending the wrath of the king. But it is more than just a note to be inscribed in an old book and forgotten. It points to Jesus Christ himself. We keep seeing twos contrasting and confirming things here in the Bible. Here we have one in Haman and one in Christ. Haman, the enemy of God's people, raised an etz, a tree, to hang Mordecai on. And yet he, the wicked one, was hanged on it instead. In that act, the wrath of the king subsided. In Christ, we see that he, the savior of God's people, allowed the raising of another etz, a tree, which rightfully belongs to us, God's enemy. And yet he, the righteous one, was hanged on it instead. In that act, the wrath of God subsided. We cannot read the Bible and come to any other conclusion. God promised it in Genesis. In Revelation, it says it was from the foundation of the world itself. In the book of Numbers, the bronze serpent was placed on a pole for the people to look at and be saved. In John 3, Jesus said that he, like that serpent, would be lifted up. The theme keeps repeating, there is good and there is evil, but the good assumes the place of the evil in order to restore the good. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians, for he made him, meaning Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ was made sin for us. He became the serpent on the pole. He became the Haman on the tree. The pictures keep repeating to show us the undeniable truth that God is angry at sin, but he loves us enough to remove that sin by judging it in his own dearly beloved son. The question in which Aye or I am is hidden asks, who is he and where is he? The king was looking for an answer to who it was that would dare to destroy God's people. The answer is revealed in Haman, but the answer as to who would save God's people was right there in his own question. Who is he and where is he? The answer is, I am that I am. 
I am will save my people. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am that I am. I am Jesus, the incarnate word of God. Haman was hung upon a tree and salvation came to the Jews. Jesus was hung upon a tree and salvation came to the world. Haman died in sin. Jesus Christ, our Lord, died for sin. It is the word of God. And it is astonishing. Now, I've got to tell you something. There are people all over the world that click onto these videos, and sometimes somebody will say, I clicked on it because I wanted to hear about the book of Esther or the book of Ruth or whatever curious reason. And that pleases me to no end. But I'm going to tell you what pleases me to no end is when we talk to somebody in the projects about the simplicity of what Jesus Christ did for us, and they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing on this planet is because without him, we are condemned to hell. I'm going to read you something. Everybody knows John 3.16. Somebody say it while I'm looking for what I'm looking for. Great. You all got it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Look at me. Don't look at your Bible. Can anybody cite John 3.18? It's very important. Let's see what he said there. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. It's our default position, folks. We're on our way to a bad place just by being born. That's our default position. And it's not anybody's fault. Really, we're just born that way. But that's where we're heading. That's because Adam disobeyed God and Adam is our federal head. When he sinned, we sinned in him. Go to the book of Hebrews and read about the giving of the Levitical tithes. Abraham lived long before his great or his grandson, great grandson Levi, didn't he? And yet they make the point that Levi is given tithes from Israel, which are paid to Abraham. And yet Levi wasn't alive at the time of Abraham. We inherited sin from our first father. He is our federal head. Whether you like Donald Trump or not, he is our federal head. And so we are under him. When he passes a law, it pertains to us. The law of sin is death. And there are two types of death that the Bible speaks of. It says in the Bible, the wages of sin is death, right? Everybody remember that? There are two, two types of death in the Bible. The first is physical death. We're all going to physically die, and that's a result of the other type of death in the Bible, spiritual death. The moment that Adam sinned against God, there was a disconnect. We were separated from God the Father, and that is eternal. It can never be corrected by us. There is nothing we can do. There is no work that we can do. There is no money we can give to the church. There is nothing that we can do to fix that because God is infinite and we're finite. We can get on that ladder and we can climb forever and ever and we will never attain that height, but God can do it. And what he did is he came into the stream of humanity. Every single person in here has a father and a mother. That's how people are born. And the sin travels from father to child. So every woman and every man has a father. He or she inherited that sin from their father. Everybody understand that? Mm -hmm. But Jesus Christ did not have a human father. His father is God. And so when he was born of a woman, he's fully man. 
but he was also born of God, and so he is fully God without the sin inherited in him. Everybody got that? Now, what did he do? He put himself under the law that he gave to Moses. The law of Israel, 613 laws. Try obeying any of them. I mean, for crying out loud, say, thou shalt not lie, right? We've all done that by the time we're two years old. We're condemned. It is done. But we just add on to it by breaking the law of Moses. It says in the 59th book of the Bible, the book of James, that if you err in one part of the law, you've broken the law. The entire law is broken because of your sin. So he put himself under that law. The perfect, sinless son of God put himself under the law of Moses. He didn't just come and say, I'm going to circumvent everything and I'm going to do it the easy way. He did it the hard way and he never broke that law. He never violated it. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. He was capable of taking away our sins because he was born without sin, right? But is he qualified? Can he live that law perfectly? And the Bible testifies to the fact that he did. He is qualified to take away our sins. And then he said, I give up my own life of my own accord. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He gave up his life for what you deserve, the wrath of God. And that's all pictured right here in the book of Esther. Haman died in his sin. Jesus Christ died for our sin. And he asks us to do the most difficult thing that any person will ever do on this planet because it gets rid of ourself when we do it. We love ourselves. We love ourselves and we're full of pride and I'm going to do something good to make God happy with me. And it's so difficult. He says, you don't have to do that at all. He says, all you need to do is believe. I believe that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. I believe that he died without sin and that he came out of the grave to prove it. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. He died on a cross. That's the most attested to event in all of antiquity. We know that it's true, and we also know that he came out of the grave, proving he had no sin. Because if he had sin, he would have stayed in that grave. He came out for you. He died for you. He came out for you. So I would ask that if you have never simply asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, God, I'm a sinner. I understand that I deserve to be condemned, but I want Jesus' offering of peace, peace with you, a restoration of the death that I already possess being granted in life. Does everybody understand that? You were spiritually reborn. That's what being born again means. You were born again, not of human flesh, but of the Spirit of God. That's what God wants from you. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Please do it. Please do it today, okay? I have a closing verse for you here. It's from John chapter 12. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast off. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And he did it, and they are. And the choice is now yours. He has drawn you to himself through this magnificent word of God, which he has given us, which is filled with absolute proofs that he is God and that he has written this word. There's nothing more certain of that than anything else in my life. I know my wife loves me, but I know the word of God is true more than that. I know that that chair is green and that one is black, but I know that this is the word of God more than both of those facts. There's nothing I am more certain of having gone through this book line by line, starting with the book of Genesis and seeing the marvel and the miracle which is hidden in there for us to discover. 
And it all begins with a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Please do not leave here today if you have never called on Christ. I remember I was just a brand new Christian in 2001. And in September of 2001, I was walking into my store just down the road. And a guy next door came out and said, Charlie, Charlie, a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. And I said, what? He said, yeah, it exploded. And there's people that are jumping out of the building. I said, no. I walked into the back of my store and I turned on my TV. And guess what? They had not cut that feed yet. And you could watch people. I'm either going to burn to death or I'm going to jump out of this building. And not one of those people thought, today I'm going to go into this building and push that button and go up and get a coffee and jump out the window. Not one of them. But there they were focusing on these bodies until finally they said, cut that feed. And then a couple minutes later, a second plane flew into a second building while I sat there watching it. And none of those people knew that was coming. That airplane was destroyed before the nose hit the the building. It was so fast. And 300 people died instantly. And how many more in those buildings? And you don't know if you're going to walk out of here today and somebody's going to run you over or if you're going to get in a car accident or some other horrible thing. This is the reality that we live in. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Now is the time of God's favor. I would beg you that if you have never asked for Jesus Christ to take away your sin, to do it today. Next week is Esther 8, 1 through 17. From dreariness in mourning to joy in garments with lovely sashes. It's entitled Beauty for Ashes. That'll be your 10th Esther sermon. And I'll tell you, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. At times, you might feel as if he has no great design for you in life, but he has brought you to this moment to reveal his glory in and through you. So call on him, follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Short poem, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. It's entitled, Hang Him High. Little Clint Eastwood there. (laughs) So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again to Esther said to her, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request up to half my kingdom? It shall be done. My word is true. Then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, I speak at your behest. And if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, leaving my pain unstated. Although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss, the difference is that of gold compared to mere dross. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The wicked Haman is the adversary and enemy. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Looks likely that his last day has been seen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. His head, it did ring. But Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine given by his spouse, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth over this disgrace, they covered Haman's face. 
Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Let's use Haman to give it a try. So the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows as the king decided, those that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Lord God, thank you for your presence that is with us, even when we don't realize that you are there. Because you sent your own son, Jesus, we can know that you truly do care. And so, Lord, be real to us in a wonderful new way. Open our minds and hearts to seeing you always. Through every step we take and throughout every day, be real to us, O God, and to you we shall give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the wonderful lessons that we're learning in the book of Esther. Astonishing things are hidden there that have not been seen since the words were first penned 27, 2800 years ago, whatever. But there they are, and they come out week by week with these marvelous insights into what you have done for us. And we thank you for that. But above all, we would pray, Lord, that if somebody hears this sermon today and has never called on Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, as the one to forgive them of their sins, that they would simply do it. Put aside self, that very difficult thing to get around, that big obstacle which is in the way of everything we do, just to put aside self and to say, I will trust Jesus for my eternal salvation. There is a God, I understand that, and I understand that he is infinitely separated from me, but Jesus has come to take care of that. If they would pray that in their heart, if they would receive him as their savior, what a glorious thing it would be. We love you, Lord. That's why we have this church is because we love you and we want to see people come to you and then to grow in the knowledge of you. Doctrine really is important because we can be tossed about on a sea of bad doctrine for the rest of our Christian walk if we don't hold fast to this precious word. And so help us to do it and to study it and to contemplate it and to love it and to cherish it all the days of our life. But first and foremost, to have our love of Jesus, our Lord. Help us to be that way and to be those people that you are pleased with. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.